Hello, listeners. This is Dave Silk, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Mitel Networks, a global communications company with offices all around the world. We believe that truly transformative change starts with a company culture that intentionally fosters courageous, empathetic, and inspiring leadership. At Mitel, we love how the Lead from the Heart podcast is helping leaders like you realize their full potential to better serve their people. And we're proud to be the sole sponsor. If you would like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at mitel.com forward slash mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. For much of the pandemic, a familiar ritual has played out in workplaces around the globe. Companies set return to office dates, only to later backtrack and delay them due to health concerns. Apple, for example, was set to have employees back in its offices at the start of 2022, but has moved their return date to February at the earliest. And with COVID cases seemingly on the rise again, many other companies are questioning their approaches just as Apple is. But let's assume for the moment that the worst of the pandemic is behind us and returning to our workplaces has suddenly become viable. Can we assume companies have firmly defined how many days a week they'll expect employees to be in the office? Have they decided how they'll specifically manage people differently in the post-COVID era? And overall, do they know all the ways they'll pivot at this unprecedented leadership inflection point? Well, it may or may not surprise you, but they haven't. Surveys of CEOs have shown that most top leaders simply don't know what the future is going to be like. And just like the rest of us, they're still trying to figure it all out. Making things even more challenging is the fact that many employees want to continue working remotely, at least some of the time. While for employers, the benefits of people working from home or hybrid approaches are not so obvious. In light of the Great Resignation, where millions of workers are quitting jobs every month, workplace leaders have critical decisions to make about how they intend to manage, and they need informed guidance on how best to make them. So we've invited Wharton Business School professor Peter Capelli to join us on the podcast. His prescient new book is called The Future of the Office, Work from Home, Remote Work, and the Hard Choices We All Face where he unveils the surprising trade-offs both employers and employees may have to accept in order to get what they want. His research reveals that there's no consensus among business leaders. Even the most high-profile and forward-thinking companies are taking divergent approaches. And his research shows that previous efforts at allowing workers to telecommute and work from home didn't really work out all that well. So what's the best decision for you and for your employer? Well, I can't give that to you, of course, but Peter Capelli joins us to explore how we should all think about these choices going forward, as well as who wins and who loses in all the different scenarios. And one thing's for certain, we have to declare our options and our decisions soon. Welcome to the podcast, Peter Capelli. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for joining me. You know, I've heard all kinds of estimates of what percentage of workers have jobs that can be done remotely. So before we get started, size this up for us. How many workers and what percentage, I suppose, does the potential for working home actually apply right now? That is a good question. I can work backwards and tell you that at the moment, this is pretty recent data from the census for October, 
11% of American workers are working from home, which is not a huge number. At the peak of the pandemic, about 30% were working from home or maybe 33%. And at one point, a survey done by the Pew Foundation found that 70% of people who said their jobs could be done at home were working at home. So at one point, this was a really big deal. And I guess the question is, what percentage of people your question precisely, say their work is possible to do from home. It's kind of a slippery target because you can make lots of things able to work from home. But I think we're thinking all office jobs might fit there, you know. So it's a pretty big chunk of the economy, working backwards, taking out production workers and that sort of stuff. I don't know, half the employees maybe in the U.S. It's possible maybe could work at least partially from home. So why is it only 11% that are working from home right now? Well, I think it's because a lot of employers have already brought people back. So I saw some data across the country, and this is very reliable data. This is data from the sort of swipe cards, you know, that show you who is in buildings and mm-hmm. badged in. And in the Texas cities, two-thirds of the employees are back in their offices. And, you know, in San Francisco, it's the low end. So about 28% were back in their offices. So I think the punchline is uh, employers have started to bring people back. And I think that's probably going to start accelerating. So this went in a different direction than I thought I was going to go. And so I guess my big question then is, are we making much to do about nothing here in terms of working from home? Because if only 11% of the population is working from home and we have organizations that have deferred the decision to return to work, return to offices, if you will, until January, sort of this post-COVID dream that we can all return. So that means that that includes those people. So even though there's this potential huge audience of people that could work from home, what you're saying is it's a really nominal number of people and that the movement is really truly to working back in the office. And I guess I'd better parse this and ask you, when you say 11% are working from home, does that mean exclusively or does that mean on a hybrid? Right. And that's what I don't know. And I don't think the question was so clear about that. But I suspect that they were asking a kind of general question as to whether you were back in the office, trying to get at the idea of what percentage of people are kept out of the office, you know, unable to come back in yet. So I think you can think of those 11% as people who are, you know, or still have not been brought back into the office in any way. They're still kind of working completely remotely. But I think, you know, that is the interesting question is what is going to happen? There's been an awful lot of talk about hybrid models just mean everything other than you're not coming in the office at all and you're all back all the time. So hybrid's just everything in between. And I don't think we know yet. So I think, you know, there's a lot of stories about a lot of companies that have made announcements about how they're going to do something different. But I think most employers have not really said yet. And I think a lot of them are watching to see what all their competitors Mm do. And the, the problem, I guess, though, is on the one hand, if you're all waiting to see what everybody else does, you're all kind of doing nothing for a while. And I think that's kind of the story, except in the meantime, without any explicit statements, people are coming back into the office. And I think that in the longer run means that a lot of companies might just not bother to take the question on at all. You know, we're just doing it by drops. And poof, before you know it, we haven't made any statement about 
remote work or working from home and everybody's back in the office, let's just forget about it. My guess is there'll be a lot of companies that do that. Well, I'm just going to jump to the head of the class here and ask a question that I think I anticipated asking you, but not this early, which really has to do with the the juxtaposition of companies saying we want our people back in the office and people saying that they don't want to ever return to the office. So is that a big audience of people? And do you think that they're going to march out of companies that ask them to come back to work? Is that really going to be a big movement? Or do you think the vast majority of people are going to just end up complying with what their bosses and companies say? Yeah. So let's see if we could work backward on that one a little bit. If you look at the survey data from employees, it's kind of all over the place, depending who's asking the survey, I guess. But a credible one I saw a while ago found that about less than 10% of the employees wanted to be permanently remote. That is, you know, I'm just not coming back into the office ever again. Thank you very much, right? So it's not a big number, but it's also a pretty extreme approach. About 30 plus percent wanted to come back to the office, which didn't mean they wouldn't be cool with some occasional ability to work from home, but it wasn't, didn't seem to be like they wanted a lot of change. The majority of employees, but it's not a huge majority, so 52% or something, said they wanted some hybrid work, which is not too surprising. I mean, if you say hybrid means you have some choice, then you would think everybody would kind of like that idea. And the question, I guess, for employers is, are, are you going to bite on that one or not? And if so, what's it going to mean to be hybrid? So maybe I should stop there and get the maybe the second part of your question, which I probably forgot already. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, you're doing great, actually. Like I said, we're going in a direction that I didn't anticipate, but I'm trying to anticipate what my audience is wondering. Yeah. And so we'll just use a real example. Google was this first major tech firm to outfit their offices with these magnificent perks, gourmet food, gyms, you know, buses to bring people in and out of work, all with the purpose of keeping people in the office. And their example then had this profound influences on businesses everywhere and everybody was trying to offer more glamorous perks and benefits. And so now they've pivoted and they're going to let 20% of their workforce go wherever they want to work. I don't know how they identified those people, but 20% of their company is never going to have to come back to the office. But the vast majority of people are going to be expected to be in the office three days a week. So that's their definition of hybrid. And Google's even letting people work anywhere in the world for an entire month. So you can just go away and work wherever you want to work as one additional perk. Pretty glamorous perk, true. So in light of this, You say that the white collar world is facing a fundamental inflection point for its future. And so I'm wondering, just to continue where we were, how how much do you think Google's new influence is going to have their decision? Are companies going to be looking to them as sort of the genius trendsetters? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, the question just, I guess, even prior to that is, okay, well, what did they conclude? Were they wrong about their previous view that all that stuff they did was a waste of time? I think what's going on with those companies is that they uh, believe that their employees, the ones they care most about, which are you know, the more skilled technical people in programming, software management and stuff, that those people are extremely footloose. Everybody would like to hire them. And their competitors were first movers on this, Facebook in particular, which announced early on that, you know, you never have to come back or something like that, you know, to your office. And I think the the concern was just competitiveness, that they saw their competitors in the market kind of moving 
in the direction of being able to work from home. And they didn't want to be the last person to say yes, or the last company to say yes, because everybody already would have left them by that point. So I think that's what they're doing. Now, the surprising thing is that what the rest of the companies are doing, my mind anyway, is they're walking back those promises. And the way they're walking them back is they have decided that, oh, by the way, you're going to have to pay a price to work remotely. This is, this is the permanent remote work. And they've done it in a couple of ways, both of which I think are sneaky and duplicitous. So let me tell you what they're saying. The first was to say, well, we're really going to pay you based on what you would have made in the appropriate labor market where you're living. Well, the reason that is silly is that the labor market where most of these people operate is a national and maybe an international labor market. It's not like there's a market for C++ programmers who do you know, mobile apps at an extremely high level in Vail, Colorado. You know, there's just not a whole industry of those folks in every part of the U.S. It's a global and particularly a national labor market. And the reason people are paid a lot of money for that in Silicon Valley is not because it's an expensive place to live. It's more the case that it's an expensive place to live because so many people there are paid a lot of money. And, you know, the places you might go also are probably going to pay you pretty well as well. So they kind of stopped saying that. And then they started to say, oh, well, well, it's going to be the cost of living where you live, right, if you decide to relocate. But I don't think they really mean that either. If you tell them, for example, I've decided to go to Hong Kong, which is 30% more expensive than Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. You need me a pay raise? No, they don't mean that. Right. So it's really just a way of walking back the promise. What I had heard was now they're asking for like a 20% pay cut if you want to work remotely different places. So, you know, this this is really just a way of saying we don't really mean it. <laughs> you know, we felt we had to say it, but we really don't want people to work permanently remote. The Google thing is a, a little different. I don't know what Google is charging people to work permanently remote, but the idea of flexibility has more legs, I think. That is the hybrid model. And the reason for employees is they believe, with some justification, that we just went through this model where we all were working remotely. We did it for at least a year or longer. And you, the employer, said everything was going pretty well. So why do we have to go back? And that is, you know, a challenging question to answer. And I would say if you're an employer and you want to bring people back, you better have an answer to that question. And if it just means because I said so, right, that's going to irritate a lot of people. Now, will they quit? Well, I think, you know, this is sort of like the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates we're hearing now where all these polls saying people are going to quit if they have to get vaccinated. People say that all the time about everything. You know, I saw one the other day that uh, said, so maybe this is from a few years ago, you know, 50% of people would quit if it would make their boss quit or something like that. They may mean it when they're saying it, but push comes to shove. Those survey responses do not predict who will actually quit very well at all. And there's a body of research on this stuff. It's very clear. I think we've seen this in polling in other areas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what people say they're going to yeah. do isn't what they're going to do all the time. Yeah. Well, but one of the themes that I'm picking up here, which is that there's, you use the word duplicity, which I love. And I'm from New York originally. And the last time I was back there, I was right before COVID. I was watching them, construction workers, take over the original New York City post office. So. Yeah right across the street from Penn Station. It's a magnificent building, magnificent architecture, and it's now empty. 
So now it's been converted. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, they're putting all this money into renovating it for office space. And who's going to be taking office space in this environment? Well, as time has marched on, <laughs> the people that are buying up all the space are Google and yeah, Facebook. Yeah, right. No, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so as I started to observe this, I was like, well, wait a minute, that is duplicitous, is it? So I'm so glad you're here because you can clear this up for me. Like, why are they willing to spend all that money on prime real estate if they have made a commitment, i.e. Facebook, right. to bringing people back? Right. They're buying hundreds of thousands of square foot, and not just in New York, but specifically there's where I saw it. So. Now, that is a great question, and we don't really know the answer. So some people have speculated that this is just because they got so much money, particularly the internet commerce-related businesses and Zoom and all, like we're using all these places, made a ton of money during the pandemic. Where are they going to park it? And maybe they're just thinking this is a good investment. It's certainly a long-term look that they're making, but it does suggest that they probably are not thinking everybody's going to be virtual. But I think we're getting at the heart of the problem here, and that is employers do call all the shots, right? We're, yep. we're talking about employees have so much power now. It's only compared to previous periods where they had zero power and they've got a tiny little bit of power now. Correct. So the employers call the shots. And the question is, what do they get out of alternative arrangements? So remote work, it's clear what they get out of that. And that is, we're going to shrink our office footprint and save real estate money. And so, you know, there are companies that might prefer that. The hybrid model it isn't clear what they're going to get out of that, right? How does it help us to allow you to work from home a couple of days a week? Well, unless you give up your office, we're not saving real estate money. And it complicates our lives enormously to have a hybrid model where supervisors have to juggle even more difficult schedules if we're not all here at the same time, but we need people together for various things or we think we do. And do I have to start managing People differently. I've got some people who want to be home more. Managing people remotely requires different skills than managing people face to face. And do I have to manage two different groups of people in two different ways? It's a pretty big lift to make that happen. So that's the puzzle. And I think that's why we haven't seen the initial interest in, you know, some sort of exotic hybrid models playing out any bigger than otherwise it might have. I want to come back to this issue of complications in terms of management, because you just mentioned something that I not only wanted to ask you, but something I'm convinced is going to create a major disruption. Managing people is disruptive enough to people's lives. It just demands a lot of energy. And so when you make it complicated, like Peter's here today, where is he going to be tomorrow? Yeah. I need Peter. How do I get him? And that's just Peter. So, but let me come back to that. You mentioned this inflection point. And I think you use this word in your book as well, where companies feel that they must declare their position on remote work. And you say that this could be the moment to redefine what work means for employees and how it fits into society. And it could also be an opportunity to make a big and costly mistake, which is clearly the hedge that a lot of companies are making by not declaring. So the problem is, it's not at all clear as to what we should do. So I'm asking you, what are the greatest risks that you see? And what's your advice to leaders who are trying to make sense of it all? Well, I think the risk which has the highest probability of, of happening, but maybe it isn't that big a downside, is that you really irritate your employees. You irritate them by not telling them what you're thinking, let alone what you're doing. I mean, I think it's one thing to say to the employees, 
look, there's a bunch of things going on here. We don't know how they're going to play out yet. Here's what we're trying to figure out. And we can't decide until this happens. You know, that's one thing. It's another thing to tell them nothing, which seems to be more more likely the case, because people get really irritated by that, understandably. And they also start making up a story about what they think is really going on. And believe me, the stories are always worse than the reality, right? I mean, they've decided to sell our business. You know, it's all being packed up and going to China. Yep, I'm going to be let go. Yeah, I'm going to be let go, right? So that is, I think, a extremely probable outcome. So that's a big thing. I think what's the other big mistake? Hoteling. You may remember that. Yeah, hot desking. Late 1990s started, yeah, hot desking, the European view, where you share desks. And a lot of companies are kind of talking about doing that. That folded very quickly. Now, why? Uh, That's a good question. One of the things that we know is people hated it. The employees hated it. And companies effectively abandoned it. I mean, there's some places consulting firms, for example, where you're never in the office anyway, and you're moving across the country following your clients. Maybe they did that hot desking thing there and still do it, but employees didn't like it. And that was a pretty expensive mistake to move in that direction. You know, what would be worse is you sell off your office real estate and then you discover, you know what, this remote stuff is really not working very well. I think the problem is, frankly, most organizations don't measure employee performance very well at all. They really don't know how well things are going. So they're kind of going with their gut on a lot of these things. So it would probably take a while before they figured out whether this was a big mistake or not. If they went strongly in one direction, like remote work, we're all going to be remote. They say, oops. Or they say, no, everybody back in the office. And then you discover people are quitting. Or the worst thing probably is, Our competitors have all decided to offer remote and our employees all really like it. And so they're leaving us, right? And then you're scrambling. I'm not sure how likely either of those are, but my guess is more companies will make the latter mistake and that is they'll do nothing and they'll find competitors have got an advantage in hiring and retaining people by offering remote and they're starting to lose people. That's my bet. Okay. So back to what we promised we'd come back to. What's your assessment of workplace managers? So you just said something that I agree with, which is that we don't really do a good job, perhaps because we've never had to, but we don't really have a good handle on what people are accomplishing and doing and what their productivity is generally, unless you're in sales, I suppose. So then you add this element of you can work here for a few days in the office and a few days from home and now we're questioning what are people accomplishing and so it just seems to me like a very big challenge for managers so i guess my question to you is and i know this is a big question and perhaps just using your all of your purview to answer it but what do you think is our current ability to manage people remotely on a hybrid schedule i mean what do you think are the key behavioral shifts that leaders are going to need to make and are we ready to make them Yeah. Well, you know, we studied this a lot during periods of telecommuting, which began about 20 years ago. And a lot of companies actually have tried some of this stuff and had some employees who were doing it for a while. It's not completely novel. The evidence there suggests about as conclusively as we can say anything, that it doesn't go well for people working remotely, at least in terms of their careers. They might like their life a whole lot more. But the problem is they don't get promoted as much. They're out of the loop in terms of information and stuff. They aren't as connected to their colleagues. They get shut out of a lot of things. Their commitment levels are lower. Engagement is lower. So it doesn't work great. 
And, you know, then the question is, I guess, could we do a better job of this? Well, here's a funny statistic during the pandemic. At least I saw this in some surveys that people reported that they liked their supervisor better. I saw that in your book. Yeah, yeah, right. During the pandemic and had better relationships with them. And of course, the really cynical explanation would be, I like her a lot better. I don't see her. See her you know? less. Yeah, exactly. Right. I don't have to interact I, with them. Yeah. Right. But I think there's a, there is something substantive there. And the substantive part is a lot of employers, I think maybe for the wrong reasons, mandated that supervisors check in with their employees, their direct reports at least once a week or more often, you know. And I think even in the regular workplace, face-to-face, supervisors don't talk to their employees very often. They see them every day. They know if they're there. When they're talking, they're talking about sports or the weather or what you do this weekend or, you know, what are your kids doing, all that stuff. But a serious conversation every week about let's talk about where your work is and what are you doing would be really helpful. And it would be helpful for remote workers. It would be helpful for people in the office, too, if we could do more of that. So I think that's something that, you know, is an obvious, smarter thing to do to manage remote employees and would help. When I read that in your book, of course, it made me laugh. And I started trying to figure out what was it. And part of it was the cynical side, which is you see their manager less, so you like them more. But I also think, and please confirm this, that Part of the reason that we companies ask people, ask their managers to be in contact with their employees when they were working from home was to demonstrate interest in them, to show greater care. And I thought, you know, that's the pivot. You feel that, hey, my manager is actually taking an interest. Like, you even know I have two kids. Like, you know that I'm struggling to school them. And you never asked me about that before. So do you think that that was also part of the, you know, the evolution that we became better at being just genuinely interested in what was going on with people? Uh, I think it's certainly a big part of it. I think the other thing, when people say they liked remote work, we're assuming we know what they meant by that, but we really don't know, right? And I think the part they liked the best was that they had a lot more control over their time, right? So that, okay, I have a bunch of stuff I have to do, but I can get it done how and when I want. I can take a break in the middle of the day and take the dog for a walk. I can let my kids in in the afternoon. So the limited evidence we've got shows that hours of work went up during the pandemic, but people maybe had to work longer to get everything done because they were taking breaks during the day or whatever, but they liked control. And back to the earlier question about the biggest mistakes you could make, here's another one, which I had forgotten about, is that a lot of companies, even after this experiment, are investing in tattleware. (laughs) This is software to watch what you're doing and to make sure you're actually at your desk so that you're working remotely from home, but you're effectively chained to your desk at home. I can't think of anything worse, Right. I mean, why bother being at home? I mean, you lose most of the benefits. First of all, is that being driven at a certain level of employee? You know, is like a call center employees or are we doing that to people that used to be in management positions in offices and now they're at home? They were counting up their keystrokes and taking photographs of them five times a day to see if they're sitting at their desk. Is that uniformly applied or is it applied Mm to, I don't know how to describe this, but a lower level employee in their mind? Well, I'm sure it's not being applied to executives. How far down is it going? That's a good question. I I don't think it is just like call center employees, though. And I think what it reflects, I mean, it reflects bad things. But one of them, of course, is that it's leaders that don't trust their subordinates. But 
not trusting them after a year of effectively having to trust them. And as far as I can tell, no evidence that they abuse the trust. I mean, this is just evidence of not learning. You know, I mean, it's just you're so stubborn and prejudiced you know, yeah. in your views on this that even a year's worth of experience doesn't change you. I mean, that that's just bizarre. But nevertheless, there's a lot of it going on. Well, going back to the beginning of the conversation, is that something that would propel somebody out the door? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think particularly, you know, now, of course, there's a lot of alternatives for people. If you're already working, then you're probably not afraid of getting so afraid of COVID that you wouldn't look for another job. And the opportunities are better. And if you're irritated, I mean, it's easy to push people out the door if there are lots of other doors open for them, right? And that's the reason now, you know, that employers would really get in trouble with this stuff. If you're in the middle of a big downside where there's downturn, there's no jobs, you know, you can abuse employees and they still don't leave. You cited this survey, I think, in the UK that showed that employee morale had declined in two thirds of companies during the pandemic. And since I read your book, I had this conversation with an executive at, we'll just call it a major American credit card company, global credit card company. And they were talking about their call center employees. And I said, you know, have you been able to retain them? throughout the pandemic. And they said, why do you ask? And I said, well, we just have this feeling that if people are isolated from one another doing a job like that, i.e. taking lots of complaints from people and having upset clients yell at them, those kinds of things that you would want to be able to have a neighbor to talk to about at a break or lunch and so forth. And when you take that away, you take their stability away and you take the joy of having a comrade around to help you get through those kinds of things and even to maneuver with certain kinds of customers. You just learn from one another. So I just said, I just have this theory that that would probably lead to turnover. And she goes, man, did you nail it? Like their turnover has been astronomical since this happened simply because of the lost connection. So tie that in with that survey that you mentioned in your book. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I mean, we know that the most effective or most important aspect that holds people to organizations are social ties. So you break those. People are more footloose. It's easier to leave your employer if you don't see your employer. You may remember the editor of the Washington Monthly Magazine who wrote this op-ed piece pointing out that it's easier to lay off people you don't see. She was arguing effectively to her employees that you know, work from home is not such a great thing for you. Mm-hmm. And they, of course, did a one-day strike, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. They'd seen that movie up in the air and knew it was yeah. true. Yeah. Right. But uh, she's right. I mean, it is true. Right? So, you know, we frayed the relationships there and it is easier for people to quit and easier probably for you to let them go. Right. So it's something to think about longer term. Well, what are the remedies? Have you seen any effective remedies for keeping cultures together, keeping people cohesive? One of the things that I reflect upon, because I spent most of my career in corporate roles, and when you're in corporate headquarters, you're just walking around, you're seeing people from areas that you have nothing to do with. But you have conversations with them, you learn what they're doing, you have a better understanding of what's going on with the organization. And in isolation, i.e. working from home by yourself, I mean, there's simply no way you're ever going to create that sort of synchronicity, right? So that in itself is lost, but you're still not even talking to your colleagues except for, you know, Zoom calls when there's 20 people on them. So that's my setting. What's the solution? 
Is there a solution? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's certainly consistent with serious research on this question. I think the other thing that that reminds us of is that the experience across workers as employees is so different on this. If you're a new hire and you have no office to go to, you don't feel any connection to the place. And, you know, the idea we're a strong culture company. Well, if you hire somebody and they never see the company, you, know, you never meet anybody, they're never in the building, you don't have a strong culture with those guys. You know, it is such a different experience for new hires as opposed to people like me who've been in the same place for a long time. It's not that hard for me to work remotely and still feel more or less the same way, but somebody who's just been hired, it's effectively impossible. I mean, we just have not figured out how to make people feel like part of the organization if they are completely virtual and remote. So, you know, we've been telling this story mainly from the perspective of, frankly, middle-aged people with kids, and they're the ones who, you know, can make the most use of this work from home approach, new hires, it's probably the worst for. Mm-hmm. How do you balance those two? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> well, um, you know, but it is interesting because the people who have the greatest interest in working from home are the, and just to pin down what you just said, are the people who are the least to benefit from it, right? Gen Z, the younger generation of employees coming into the workforce, I don't think they can anticipate the benefits of yeah. being in an office, right? And so they're the ones more strident in their opinions about, I don't want to work any company that won't let me, but it's really not in their best interest. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't really think we hear that anyway from kids right out of college. I mean, if you think about like our Wharton students, if you think about the undergraduates, you know, they want to go to, or at least they did want to go to Hong Kong, I don't think now, but you know, London, New York, and work there. And if they got a job in New York, and as soon as they got the job, they said, great news, you never have to come in the office. I don't think they'd like that. I mean, why live in New York? Right. And so I think they understand that it's quite important. You won't have a social life if you don't work in the office, you know. I think it's people a little older than that who think that they can get more time to go travel and go places they would like to travel. I think that seems to be a group that's very much behind it. I think the other group, of course, people who have caregiving responsibilities, and for them, you know, it is a big advantage to be closer to your kids, and it's hard to refute that. But there are other people who don't, you know, it's not such a attractive thing for, and that's the problem, right? We have something that could be really important to some employees, not to others, And we haven't talked about all those employees who can't work remotely because their jobs don't allow it. What are you going to do for those folks if you give this big perk for some employees and nothing for others, particularly those frontline workers who've been working all through the pandemic and, you know, keeping the lights on and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we're not doing anything for them. So it's another hard thing to worry about. Well, I think it's not unreasonable to think a lot of those people would be resentful, not just because they worked through the pandemic and were frontline, but because they see other people being able to work remotely. And I'm thinking, you know, as soon as I can find a job like that, I'm out of this one. You know, so you're going to have that sort of tension between people. Is that another reason that you think that people are more likely to end up working in offices when COVID is clearly done and over? Well, I think sensible, uh, thoughtful employers who are starting to go down the lists of how to manage this process, when they start bumping up against all these problems, the opportunity to use this as a way of changing things 
wouldn't be too surprising if they said it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. It's more work than we want to get into, which yep. is certainly possible. I thought that would be the conclusion. By the way, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but Portugal made countrywide decisions about this, yep. saying that the first thing was that if you're working from home, that any electricity or internet fees that were incremental to what you already had, the companies have to pay for it. Ooh. Number two was that bosses would be fined and companies would be fined if they texted or emailed their employees after work hours. Oh, wow. And the third, which goes to what you were just talking about, which I find fascinating, is they give all, they weren't clear if it was mothers and fathers, but let's just say explicitly mothers of children who are eight years or younger, guaranteed work from home. So they don't have to go to their employers Ah. to get permission. Yeah. So uh, that brings me to a question of about, do you think that companies would be wise to do more in creating boundaries of, because this is one of the big challenges of working from home, is that people lost sight of when workdays started and workdays ended and bosses took advantage of that. Say, hey, could you jump on a call and are you eating dinner or, you know, texting people or emailing people at seven, eight, nine at night and bosses saying, oh, you don't need to respond to that. But people feeling like if I don't, then, you know, I'm going to look like I'm a slacker or, you know, next guy out, whatever the fears are. So have you thought about that? Well, other folks have. Uh, So the company GitHub, which has gotten a lot of attention for this, is a company that's completely virtual. Be interesting to see if they stay completely virtual as they get bigger and bigger. Right now, they get maybe a thousand, two thousand employees now but they've grown a lot recently. And they have a whole series of rules and guidelines about how to manage virtually. And they're pretty sensible. And I think it is useful for an employer to think about these things like, when do you schedule a Zoom meeting and how long should those meetings be? And are there alternatives to scheduling Zoom meeting? Can you just do some stuff on Slack or some other channel? And you know, setting norms on those things. I think the norms on the hours of work The complication there is if you give employees control over their time during work and you put too many rails on when they can do that work, then it takes away their flexibility. I got this much work to do and I can't work after six o'clock at night. I can't take the dog for a walk here in the middle of the day and get all this stuff done. I mean, is that a benefit? You know, not so clear. I was having this conversation with some folks in the European Union yesterday, same sort of topic. And, you know, they're stunned, of course, in the U.S. that employers are not doing more to adopt work from home. But you just documented one of the reasons, and that is in Europe and European Union generally, they have been pushing this along from the employee's perspective for quite a while. They've already had this policy for a while that employees, I've got exactly how it works, but employees have this opportunity to pick a day a week to work remotely. And for the employer, here's one of the problems. Guess which day employees tend to pick? Friday. Friday, right. Everybody wants to be off Friday, right? And so if you're the employer, what do you what do you do? Right. So so this reflects a big political difference and the relative power that employees have versus employers, depending on where you are. But in the U.S., it's the employer still calling the shots. So millions and millions of people are quitting jobs right now, 30 million in like the last six or seven months in America alone. What's your assessment? What's driving this? Well, this is a big overblown story. Let me give you some evidence on this. So it is true that this is the highest quit rates 
but not of all time. It's just the highest quit rate since we've been collecting the data, which has only been 20 years. And we know that turnover jumps. The biggest predictor of turnover is how tight is the labor market. And at the moment, the problem we ran into is all the employers waited, or not all, but lots of employers waited until demand was already up. And they're all trying to hire the same people at the same time. And, you know, this is kind of a failure of planning, right? What you mean by that is that during COVID, people went cold and didn't hire anyone. And then when they started to think, okay, we can go back to the offices, then everybody started posting positions. Yeah. And they got rid of their recruiters. They laid those folks off early on. So you don't have recruiters to hire people back. Many employers early on furloughed people, which meant you kind of kept them on the book. So it's easier to bring them back. But then a lot didn't do that, right? So if you looked at the turnover, which jumps with the opportunities, the turnover rate per month is about 2.9%, which is high. But before the pandemic, it was 2.6%. So, you know, I mean, is it a lot? It's a lot, but it's not that much more than you would see in other tight labor markets. The other thing about the quit rate is the assumption you sometimes hear that people who are quitting are not working. There's no evidence for that. Most of the people who quit are taking a job someplace else. And one of the quirky things is that by some measures, there's probably not enough quitting going on because most employers get the new hires they want from other employers, right? It's not that they're all hiring from the unemployed. In fact, that's probably much less the case, right? And there's some evidence, and I think, I'm not sure if I talked about it, got into the book in time, but the folks that indeed had me do a report and I saw some of their data on what's going on now. And the amount of job search, even for regular employees, people who are working, has dropped a lot, which is surprising given all these jobs, right? So I think the, you know, this idea that everybody's quitting is, first of all, it's a big myth. It's not anything structural. It is reflects the fact that there's just a ton of jobs now all of a sudden. And there's no indication that these people are leaving work per se. They're just taking other jobs, which is frankly how you would think a market's supposed to work. Let me just clarify, though, the idea that during the, particularly the early months where we were truly locked pre-vaccine days, that people had a lot of time on their hand and they used it for life reflection. And so now you're seeing the manifestation of that where people are saying, I have my ladder on the wrong wall or I'm working for the wrong company or I hate my boss or I don't want to be doing this work anymore. And that's what's led to this great recession. That's a myth? That's what's led to, you mean, the quits? Yeah, that's what's led a lot of people all at once to say, I'm going to do something else. Yeah, I don't think that's going on. That view is that people quit jobs because they are unhappy. There's another view, of course, that people leave jobs because they're pulled out. And the advantage of the pulled out story is that if you quit a job because you're unhappy, you're unemployed. And that's why intentions to quit don't explain much. Because when you're looking at the, you're not having a paycheck, you could be miserable and want to quit and can't do it. But you just said that people weren't leaving and quitting. They were leaving and moving to a new position. Right. They're not quitting to go study yoga and right. just not work, right? I mean, I'm sure there are some of those, but most everybody who quits moves immediately to another job. So they're not quitting to go home and ponder their existence. At least most of them are immediately going to another job, right? And the assumption in the press stories is all that everybody's quitting and, you know, deciding to reflect on their lives. And we got no evidence of that. How did that narrative get built then? 
Because there's a lot of people that are promoting that. Yeah, a lot of people are promoting that. But I would just ask them, what's your evidence for that? And I don't see any. I mean, there's no data indicating that that's the case. Well, there's a colleague of yours that came up with the whole idea of the Great Recession. I think that was his premise. Well, great marketing idea, but there's no evidence from the labor market that that's what's going on. Wow, that's totally fascinating. So brass tacks couple questions here. For people who work a hybrid schedule, are you in favor of having everyone come into the office on the same days or give them full discretion on whatever they want to do? Well, you know, this is one of these great trade-offs as to whether you're trying to help the employees or the employer. Giving people discretion as to when they come in is, of course, best for them. They like it the most. It is hardest on the employer. And so, you know, you see most employers now saying we got some days you have to be in the office so that we can plan around that. For the employer, that's a whole lot better, but it's never perfect though, right? Because you may find that the days you really need everybody together to talk about something just might happen to fall on that work from home day. And then, you know, you're on a Zoom meeting again, you know, but that seems to be the common approach. And it's kind of a striking a balance a bit. I think what we will find is a lot of employees will be saying to their immediate supervisors, hey, you know, I really need to be off on Friday because my kids have this doctor's appointment. It's a standing appointment on Friday. I can't change it. And I know that's the day we're supposed to be in the office, but how about if I just cut off? You know, I think we'll see a lot of that going on. We've already got a lot of that now. Doesn't that, though, become a herding cat kind of responsibility for managers? Well, yeah, right. We got that now because a lot of employees already have these deals with their employers before the pandemic that allows them, you know, little workarounds and things. And we got it already. And, you know, you'll have to police that, I guess, going forward. But there'll be a lot of demand for it. So what are the downsides about remote working for employees and employers? We've sort of touched on a few of them, but specifically, what are we not really fully considering? Well, I think people who are arguing for remote work are thinking about people whose work can easily be done individually. I'm an individual contributor. You know, for those folks, like outside salespeople and consultants, you know, IBM got rid of 40% of offices for its employees a long time ago, like 20 years ago, I think, you know, almost, because those folks, you know, they were independent contributors in one way or the other. And, you know, you can do that pretty easily if those are sure. the kind of people you're talking about, right? Those jobs. If you want to expand it more broadly, we discover that lots of people work on projects and things that require cooperation. And for those folks, you know, we just don't have a sense about whether it's possible to make that work if people aren't face-to-face. -face. Everything we know so far suggests that it doesn't work well when people aren't there. Now, maybe we'll figure out a way to do it better, but at the moment, we can't. So that's, I think, the first issue. Issue of people learning and developing in the organization and informal learning, which is really important. You lose that when you're working remotely. So there's a problem for the employers. The question of managing schedules gets harder the more flexibility you give employees. And we have these kind of equity issues too, with respect to, you know, you get to work remotely and you may be working in the office, but you don't because your job is tied to this particular set of equipment or kind of data security or something and you can't do it remotely. So the fairness questions become much more troublesome. So that's, you know, the downsides for the employers of doing it. We talked about the downside of the employees, particularly depending who you are and what you want to do. 
you know, if you really want to advance in the organization, don't work from home, frankly, at least what we know now is that you are at a big advantage if you're closer to the people who are making important decisions. Not a big surprise to say that, but that's uh, obviously true. And if you're beginning your career, it's really important to be in the office because you can learn a whole lot more faster. What if I'm a boss and we adapt a hybrid schedule? Let's just say Mondays and Fridays, making this up, we're home. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're together. And so... If I'm not in the office as the manager, if I apply myself the same exact schedule, yeah. so I'm at home, then doesn't that take away that advantage that you just described? So if I apply that discipline, then am I making sure that nobody gets the, <laughs> you know, the sort of like currying favor with their boss? Hi, boss, I'm here every day. You know, just want you to know, <laughs> you know, promotion yeah. time. But if they don't do that, if they don't come into the office, if they, if they apply the same schedule, does that neuter that? Well, it reduces it a lot. I think the problem is for bosses and even for your supervisor, you know, it is pretty important, more important for them to be in the office to the extent to which the office is a communication center and an information center. So I don't think you're going to see that many bosses really take advantage of work from home opportunities, at least to the extent that their direct reports uh, will do. And, you know, some of that is kind of understandable. It's intuitive, but except for me, because when you said it, I was like, oh, that's pretty obvious, but you're exactly right. And more reason why the pullback to the office is going to be a very strong magnet. You know, we talked about um, people sort of saying that they would quit and not quit. But yep. Amazon made the decision that everybody's coming back to the office. And so what about recruiting? Are they going to have a hard time? I mean, they're making a big gamble. But are they going to have a hard time by recruiting top talent that doesn't want to come into a Seattle workplace every day? Yeah. Well, one of the things that is interesting we haven't thought about is maybe this just sorts people out. Yeah. You know, will you attract a different kind of employee? And maybe that's okay, you know, that we start sorting them out. You want to be in an office? Fine. You come work here. You don't? Fine. Go over there. And then the question is going to be, maybe we learn something about what the real performance and productivity differences are. And then things will start to change. You know, the problem, I think, is that we tend to make these decisions not based on any real evidence, but on preconceived assumptions. And they're generally ones that are, you know, not all that informed about management, you know. So people are in the office, they're productive. When they're not, they're unproductive, right? Which was the usual assumption before. Mm -hmm. so we'll have to see how that plays out. Well, but it, it does give sort of a greater urgency to companies to declare what they're going to be rather than keep it under the kimono because, the sooner you declare, then you start attracting the people that are interested in your bargain, right? That's a really important point. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the other side, of course, is that it is important to, I think, let employees know that you don't know everything yet and that you're trying some things out. But I think it is important to say, here's our inclination. Here's how we see things. Here's our point of view or our values about this. You know, are we trusting of our employees or do we think it's really important to everybody being? What percentage of leaders do you think are that transparent? What percentage of organizations do you think have an inclination to be that transparent? Well, I think the ones that have announced hybrid schedules are saying that. I think they are. Now, the question that you're raising, which is a good one, is of those who are just sitting on their hands and waiting to see, 
what percentage of those are willing to make a statement about at least what their intentions are. And that's trickier, of course, because one of the reasons they're sitting on their hands is because they don't want to say yet. But you're pointing out, I think, a good point that there is a downside to not speaking. And the job market is where that might be manifested. Good point. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here, and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. Hi, everyone. Dave Silk here again with a quick message. Leading people successfully in any workplace is fully dependent upon knowing every employee's story and taking meaningful action to support their unique needs. It should come as no surprise that we at Mitel Networks love Mark's heartbeat round. In just a dozen or so questions, we learn so much about what motivates and inspires every guest. Along with me and all the employees at Mitel, we are so proud to be the sponsor of the Lead from the Heart podcast and greatly appreciate you as a listener. Peter, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a quick break from our discussion and transition into what we call the heartbeat round to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life and philosophy. I'm going to ask you a few more questions, but these require quick, instinctive, and brief answers. So in other words, answer them in a heartbeat. You ready to play? Okay. Okay. All right. Critical piece of leadership wisdom you give Wharton MBA students that you can pass along to us as well. I think the single most important thing which you can use almost everywhere is to just stop and say, what's the problem we're trying to solve here? Just a little clarity at the very beginning. Love that. Thing you personally like best about working from home? Um, I don't have to get up so early. It's a big thing. The thing you personally like least about working from home? It's very difficult to stop our dog from barking. <laughs> That's happened several times during podcasts. So I know that. A yeah. prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Uh, the future looks like the past, only more so. I always like that expression. So things that are underway now are likely to continue, but don't expect any giant pivot. The experience that currently ranks number one on your bucket list. Well, you know, a private dinner with the president is probably not going to happen. So, you know, there are some trips I think I would like to take. We've always meant to take a longer sabbatical in Italy, for example. That would be fun, I think. Sounds great. Your synonym for the word heart. My synonym for the word heart. Um, soul. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Uh, insecurity. Hmm, that's actually a new one. Arrogance and ego generally comes up in that question. Yeah, well, they may play out often the same way, right? <laughs> yes, right. The quality you admire most in other people? Um, modesty. Cultural value every organization should have? Tolerance. A book you believe everyone listening in should read? Well, uh, assuming people are business people, I always thought my years at General Motors is fascinating just to see how modern business got started. Who wrote that? Alfred P. Sloan. And I have not read that, so very good. A life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. Things don't matter as much as you think, <laughs> or, or maybe d differently, nobody's paying as much attention to you as you think. Maybe that's a better one. Skill improvement you're working on right now, personally. Uh, I'm not really working on skill improvements. Thank you. Look at you. Wait a minute. <laughs> might want to work on modesty. Just to stop. <laughs> well, I, I just don't care so no. much. Yeah, I just don't care so much. No, I don't. I understand my faults and, you know, I'm getting happy with them. Good for you. That's great. The most underestimated and undervalued leadership trait of all. Yeah, I think kindness. 
really goes a long way. Fantastic. And finally, one effective way you've learned to sustain relationships with colleagues while you've all been working remotely? Well, uh, I think just pinging them, people you don't see, you know, just a, a quick communication or something. Of course, there's also the quarantini uh-huh. hour where you can have cocktails with your friends. Have virtually. you done that? Yeah, I've done that quarantine. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. Good for you. All right, these were great. Wonderful. Thank you very much for going through this with me. Good. My pleasure, Mark. Peter, before we let you go, is there anything about your book that we haven't yet discussed? Any final piece of leadership advice that you'd like to leave in the hearts and minds of our audience as we end the podcast? Well, I would say don't wait for the movie version because I don't think it's going to be optioned by anybody. So (laughs) (laughs) who's going to play you? Have you thought of that? (laughs) George Clooney as Peter Capelli. Yeah, Yeah, I would go with that one. But uh, it is a short read and that's a, a good thing. I actually want to compliment you on that because the uh, Spencer Johnson, who wrote, uh, was the genius behind uh, One Minute Manager and, of course, Who Moved My Cheese. And those books were 99 pages. They were under 100 uh, by his intention. And he told me that the reason was, was because we're all busy. We all feel sort of a sense of guilt about reading a book wanting to read. But when we see a 300, 400 page book, we're just overwhelmed by it. And then we feel bad about ourselves. But if you can pick up a book and get something meaningful from it in 100 pages that you can sit down and read it in an hour or so, then that's the big win. Because people feel a sense of satisfaction that they've read a book, that they've learned something, but it didn't cost them their lives. And when I read your book, I was like, this is like, this is excellent. Good. It's concise. It has a lot of information in it. It's not fluff. It's really wonderful. So on behalf of readers who are interested in getting shorter books and more information, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Thank you. All right. Listen, on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much. This is very informative. Really wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Before we say goodbye, I want to thank the people who helped me succeed. These include Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yonk, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I also want to thank Mitel Networks, its employees, customers, and board chair, Mary McDowell. And great thanks go to you for listening. We not only hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, but that you'll generously introduce us to your friends as well. Our theme music is Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington and performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra. And finally, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Thank you.